Welcome back to the Big Amateurism Monologues. My name is Richard Ford, and I'm your host. You can find all my podcast materials at my podcast website, which is bigamateurism.com, and you can also check out my blog, and that's at cagerredux.com, C-A-G-E-R-R-E-D-U-X.com. Today is Friday, June 25th, and boy, I hope those of you out there in college sports land are buckled up because it's going to be a wild ride in the next couple of weeks. Yesterday, Thursday, June 24th, two very important events occurred in this whole NCAA fiasco over name, image, and likeness. And one was a ruling by a federal court in California, Claudia Wilkin, who is the same federal judge who presided over the O'Bannon and the Austin cases. And there is a case pending there that was filed on June 15th of 2020 by one of the same attorneys that participated in both O'Bannon and Austin. And it is a federal antitrust class action suit challenging new aspects of the limitations, the NCAA limitations on name, image, and likeness. And that is a very interesting order. And the court opened a pathway for potential liability to the NCAA for its compensation limits, this time in the context of nil again, just like O'Bannon. But this is a different case, and the court ruled that it was a different case. The NCAA came in and said, no, this is O'Bannon all over again. This is Austin all over again. We've been there, done that, and you need to dismiss this because it's already been decided, and the law doesn't allow you to relitigate things that have already been decided. The court rejected that argument. It's the same argument the NCAA made in Austin. They said O'Bannon said all these issues. And in this incremental approach, chipping away at the NCAA's amateurism limits, the courts have taken really a pretty permissive approach in terms of what it takes to get beyond that threshold of what had already been decided and what is new. And the court said that these claims are new. But what's most important about that case is that the court adopted the cross-market analysis that I talked a lot about in the context of Judge Mylon Smith's concurring opinion in the Austin case. He's a Ninth Circuit judge, and when the Ninth Circuit reviewed the district court's injunction in Austin, it unanimously affirmed that limited injunction on education benefits. But Smith filed a concurring opinion saying, we've got this whole analysis all wrong, and instead of looking at the interests of consumers, we should be looking only at the market participants. In this case, the schools that are competing like crazy to get these high-value athletes in football and men's basketball, and then the laborers in that market, just the athletes. And looking at all this collateral consumer demand and consumer welfare is completely irrelevant to a market that should be defined exclusively by the true participants in the transactions. And those are the universities on the one hand and the conferences and these athlete laborers on the other. And I talked about that in the Austin Guessing Game, episode 16, because this issue came up during oral argument in the Supreme Court on March 31st in response to a question that Justice Barrett posed to the United States attorney, Elizabeth Prelogger. And she said, what about this cross-market thing? And Prelogger said, we think that's an important issue, but that really wasn't considered here. So it's a very complicated analysis. I'm going to try to uh, do that for you, but I'm going to do that in a separate episode because it really 
requires some foundation and I have to do a timeline. And then I really want to talk about how that issue got folded into the thinking through Judge Smith's uh, concurrence. And that, that Ninth Circuit opinion came out on May 18th of 2020. So we really hadn't had the Supreme Court getting involved yet. The Supreme Court didn't accept the Austin case until December 16th of 2020. So what's been going on in this House case has been pretty low key. The NCAAs referred to that case as an example of the besieging and frivolous litigation, this endless litigation. And that's an interesting argument that they have made with respect to House. And at first blush, it may seem to have some merit because the issues do relate to name, image, and likeness. And name, image, and likeness was determined in O'Bannon. But when you look at the actual complaint, you look at the briefing, because the NCAA filed this motion to dismiss, and there's been full briefing. There was a hearing on it in in, uh, November of 2020. And I'm going to go through all that in my episode on this House case. But this case really sets the template for an entirely new way of analyzing athlete challenges to NCAA compensation limits. And the definition of the market, which is so important, and it's a threshold consideration, a threshold framing of any antitrust analysis. And I think Judge Smith, and I think Justice Barrett, and I think maybe the rest of the Supreme Court think that's a legitimate argument, but it simply wasn't addressed in Austin. And my interpretation of the U.S. Supreme Court's opinion in its brief discussion of the cross-market analysis, left the door open to that. And that's why this House case is, is so, so important in the way that Judge Wilkin framed the issues in response to the NCAA's motion to dismiss. But what I really want to talk about right now is another thing that happened. And this is an executive order from Kentucky Governor Andy Bashir that basically allows athletes in Kentucky, NCAA athletes in Kentucky, to exploit their name, image, and likeness with certain restrictions. It is based essentially off of a proposed bill that came out of the Kentucky General Assembly on February 11th of 2021. It hasn't been enacted. Procedurally, I'm not quite sure where it sits right now. looks like it's been approved by the General Assembly, and now it rests with the Kentucky Senate. So I don't know if they're going to speed up action on that bill. But Bashir issued an executive order yesterday, and that's a really interesting tool because it is one way for these states that have not enacted a name, image, and likeness rule to try to level out the playing field because all of this, all of this insanity over nil compensation now is being driven by one of the most powerful undercurrents in all of college sports, and that is preventing losing a competitive advantage in the talent acquisition market, the recruiting game. That's what this is all about. And the fierce competition for these high-value labor assets, mostly in football and men's basketball, really drives the entire college sports marketplace. And all of these chicken little arguments that have come from both the NCAA, but primarily from the Power Five, who are at ground zero in this talent acquisition battle, they really are focused on preserving their pipeline of talent. And they don't want any state, particularly a neighboring state, you know, Kentucky's an SEC school. And I think four of the six nil laws that are going to go into that will go into effect on July 1st, are SEC schools. So if you're Kentucky or pick your school outside of Alabama, Georgia, Florida, and Mississippi, you're pressing the panic button. 
because you're recruiting right now. And the summer period is an important period for evaluating talent and and all that stuff. So you've got these other states saying, whoa, we got to do something. We got to do something quickly. So the executive order, this executive fiat that the uh, governors have, is a really powerful tool. And we saw the power of that during COVID with all the executive orders that were completely independent of the legislative branch. And so we have an issue, I think, of equal importance to folks in the Power Five states, and that is protecting the talent pool and making sure that that competitive advantage is maximized and competitive disadvantage is minimized. But I want to just go through this because this executive order really tracks for the most part the proposed legislation in the Kentucky General Assembly, with some notable exceptions. I'm not going to do a a full compare and contrast. I may come back and look at the proposed Kentucky bill because it is very NCAA right down the line, very protective, and it has all of the restrictions that a lot of these bills have. And it is designed to allow athletes in the state of Kentucky to splash around in the nil kiddie pool once all these restrictions are in place. And whatever's left over is not going to be that meaningful to athletes. But I just wanted to point out a few important characteristics of this executive order. But before I get into the details of it, I just want to say, and I said this in the last couple of episodes, the NCAA for the last two years, has been dragging its feet on name, image, and likeness. And two episodes ago, I kind of uh, turned that timeline back really to 2005 when the NCAA was doing internal deliberations when it was thinking about this deal with EA Sports, the video company, for the use of athletes' name, image, and likenesses in video games. And so this discussion has been going on for 16 years. And in the context of proposed state legislation and then this protective federal legislation that the NCAA and Power Five want so desperately, that debate has been going on for two years and nothing has happened. But the centerpiece of the entire nil debate and the regulation of it at the state or federal level is uniformity, absolute uniformity. And I've discussed that at length, and you can go back to the episodes on uh, uniformity that I did on preemption. I did a couple of episodes on preemption, and that is uniformity. And that's what they want from Congress, and they want to nullify all these state laws. But the uniformity argument has just now just been completely thrown under the bus because the NCAA is trying to come up with these interim rules that do not have the force of federal law. They are just designed to try to save face in the wake of their longstanding inaction and refusal to do anything on nil. And again, they said, their working group said back in April of 2020 that they wouldn't be able to do anything on nil unless they got these federal protections and immunities that would essentially end the athletes' rights movement. So their conduct is consistent with their motives, and that is to do absolutely nothing on nil or as little as possible until they can get the federal government to create for them sovereign state status and be completely above the law. The very thing that the United States Supreme Court just unanimously said they should not be, but they're still at it. And their failure to act on nil is now blowing up in their faces. So what happened to uniformity? Uniformity is done. With this executive order and this new pathway to state regulation on name, image, and likeness, you're very likely going to see 
50 different standards. And to the extent that these decisions have deferred to the institutions, and when we go through this executive order, you're going to see the extent to which uh, Bashir's executive order does defer to institutional decision-making and authority, and a lot is left to the institutions. So now we could have 1,100 different standards. Not 50 different standards, but 1,100 different standards. And with that in mind, the Bashir executive order includes what he is suggesting will be from the General Assembly, a retroactive limitation of liability provision that will protect the universities. Because the whole responsibility for the compensation limits, which are now NCAA compensation limits, has been shifted to the individual institutions. And if the institutions assume the role of legislating in NIL, the role that had been exclusively reserved for the NCAA, then the individual institutions face the same potential liability that the NCAA has faced through its overarching compensation limits. So if the schools are now essentially uh, serving the role that the NCAA should be serving, and they're imposing their own name, image, and likeness regulations, then they're right in the crosshairs of all of this besieging and frivolous litigation that the NCAA has been screaming about. So this is just another way that the NCAA's failure to act has just completely upended the relationship between the institutions and the conferences and the NCAA. And now, as states are scrambling to keep from avoiding a competitive disadvantage, they're shifting the liability to the states. So I think what you're going to see are more and more of these executive orders. I believe that's the case because it's the most direct pathway before July 1st to, to getting something in place that will preserve their competitive balance as they perceive it. But that can't happen in any intelligent way from the institution standpoint unless they aren't going to be facing a slew of lawsuits. So that's a very interesting dynamic. But again, it makes a mockery of the uniformity principle. I mean, this is just a mess. And again, you have to ask yourself, where the hell is Mark Emmert? Where the hell are the conference commissioners? And where the hell is the NCAA Board of Governors. Who knows? Maybe they're holding an emergency meeting to decide on a new paint color for their new boardroom. I mean, this is just a stunning lack of leadership and and points out all of the uh, problems with the way this dysfunctional business model is operating right now and how college sports is governed and regulated. But the states are filling the vacuum and the legislative process takes some time and It's a give and take, and there's a process that they have to follow. These executive orders, boom, you just come in, and you, by executive fiat, you just basically trump the legislature, and you go right to doing what others aren't doing for themselves. (laughs) And Brashear did that. Uh, My hat's off to him on that. And Again, I think you're going to see a lot of governors doing this. So let's see. We have the whereas is, whereas is. Let's see. What's this thing called? It's called relating to responsibilities of post-secondary educational institutions as to name, image, and likeness, compensation of student athletes, and then the whereas, whereas, and they give the NCAA a bit of a free pass when they characterize their efforts in Congress to try to get a national standard. And Bashir seems to be thinking that's coming down the pike because he says, however, until that happens, that meaning the national standard from the United States Congress, the post-secondary educational institutions in Kentucky will suffer a 
significant competitive disadvantage. There you have it right there in black and white. As student athletes seek to attend post-secondary educational institutions that will allow compensation for name, image, and likeness regardless of the NCAA or the NJCAA rules. That's the National Junior College Athletic Association, not really an important actor in this, against it. And then he references the proposed legislation in the General Assembly. And I guess one other thing I want to note here, and this really arises from the new transfer rules that went into effect a few months ago, and that is that part of this competitive advantage, competitive disadvantage equation is that we're not just looking at the potential disadvantage in the acquisition of talent from high school. We're also looking at potential competitive disadvantage in the transfer market, which in men's basketball has become really dynamic. I mean, that's easier in basketball because for a variety of reasons that, that I'm going to tease out at some point. But you have uh, a really dynamic transfer market, and that can also be uh, a, a real problem for a state that is operating at a competitive disadvantage in terms of providing compensation packages. And this whole game in, in this distorted market is that schools are trying to put the best benefits packages that they can for the athletes within these compensation limits. And they can't compete on salary because that's still prohibited by NCAA rules. So they compete in all these other ways. And any little thing could give one school or one conference a competitive advantage over another. So that's really what's driving this. But don't underestimate the concern about the potential in the transfer market. So then it's, he goes to now wherefore. We're at now wherefore. I, Andy Bashir, governor of the Commonwealth of Kentucky, by the authority vested in me. Number one, let's see. It says, post-secondary educational institutions located in the Commonwealth of Kentucky shall not prevent a student athlete from earning compensation for the use of name, image, and likeness of the student athlete while enrolled at a post-secondary institution or from obtaining a certified agent for any matter or activity relating to such compensation except as outlined below. All right. So now let's go to the list of restrictions. And I don't know if it was the last episode, maybe it was two episodes ago. I went through a lot of these restrictions and talked about the Florida law. And there are a whole laundry list of restrictions that are included in whole or in part in all of these name, image, and likeness laws. And they all go to preserve institutional interest. The institutional interests are preserved first. And depending on how many items from that restrictive laundry list the state uses, there may be virtually nothing left over. I call this the nil kitty pool. And the NCAAs use this approach. And the nil kitty pool is what's left over after you basically take these athletes out of the opportunity to compete for the most lucrative name, image, and likeness opportunities in the marketplace. And this executive order does that. And again, it just follows the proposed bill in the Kentucky General Assembly. So let's look at these restrictions. And there are, let's see, one, two, three, four, five categories of restrictions. But there are multiple restrictions within some of these categories. Uh, Restriction A, compensation in exchange for the student-athlete's participation in intercollegiate athletics or other sports competitions. That is just another way of saying no pay for play, which is another way of bringing in the NCAA's conceptualization of amateurism and the student-athlete. B, 
compensation in exchange for a contract or endorsement, promotion, or other activity that the post-secondary education institutions determines is in conflict with an existing contract of endorsement, promotional, or other activity entered by the post-secondary educational institution, which is that no-conflict provision. And that is a huge limitation because it takes out of the market some of the most powerful market actors. And I think, I'm pretty sure Kentucky is a Nike school. I think over half of all FBS schools are with Nike now. But what this limitation means is that if an athlete wanted to do a deal with Adidas or Under Armour or, you know, pick your other apparel company, that would be prohibited under this provision. And that's, again, just a, that's a very big limitation. Let's see. C, compensation by, compensation arranged by, or compensation at the direction of the post-secondary educational institution, entities, or organizations that support or benefit the post-secondary institution or another athletic authority or their officers, blah, blah, blah. What that means is that the school can't be involved in procuring these name, image, and likeness deals. So the school's supposed to be completely outside of this contracting, which is a really a third-party feature. So all these deals are going to have to be done with third parties, which also takes out of the market any possibility that the group licensing rights that the schools sell to ESPN or to all these shoe and apparel companies, all of these big deals that bring in hundreds of millions of dollars, the athletes can't get a piece of that. And they can't claim that the they have group licensing rights where the, the school could pay them a portion of those proceeds. And that was an issue that came up in this House case. And that really was the genesis for the concerns in 2005 when they were selling the athletes' group licensing rights to EA Sports. And Miles Brand, the former president of the NCAA, said, wait a minute, this really looks bad, and maybe these athletes should be getting a piece of that. So one of the things that isn't discussed very much in this whole nil debate are these group licensing rights and how they are exploited by the institutions and the conferences and the NCAA. And that's a complicated legal analysis, and I'm going to talk about that when I talk about this House case. Let's see. Then D, this is a big one. Boy, this is a big one because this is the loophole. This is the Trojan horse that really could bring the hammer down on athletes' nil opportunities, particularly revenue-producing athletes. So it says the post-secondary educational institution may create reasonable limitations on or promulgate reasonable rules relating to the dates and times that a student athlete may participate in endorsement, promotional, social media, or other activities related to a name, image, and likeness agreement or contract or upon potential agreements or contracts for compensation for name, image, and likeness that the post-secondary educational institutions determines is incompatible or detrimental to the image, purpose, or stated mission of the post-secondary educational institution. And then they say, including but not limited to alcohol, tobacco, firearms, uh, and sexually oriented activities, or that uses or relies upon the intellectual property or trademarks possessed by the post-secondary educational institution. So there are three big exceptions there folded into that one paragraph D. And it's a little confusing. It's ambiguous to me. 
But this first one, that the institutions can create reasonable limitations on or promulgate reasonable rules pertaining to dates and times that a student athlete can participate in nil activities. And assuming that is intended to be a standalone restriction, that's huge. And I talked about that when I went through the laundry list a few episodes ago about all these restrictions. And this one has gotten very little attention because this grants the institution extraordinarily broad discretion to basically say, if you're doing anything on our time and in connection with your duties as a scholarship athlete, you can't be doing nil activities. And that is a massive loophole, which means that athletic departments policies or team policies or coaches' rules would trump the rights that these athletes have under this executive order or any law that may come out of the Kentucky General Assembly. And then they have the limitation on kind of the sin products. You can't do a deal with a third party that's promoting something that the the institution doesn't want promoted. And then this last thing is a classic restriction that is contained in a lot of these nil laws. And that is that the athletes can't use the institution's intellectual property. They can't use their name, their logo. And that was initially intended to prevent the association of these third-party deals with the university. It was a way to, I think, both protect the brand of the logo and protect the brand and image of the intellectual property of the university, but also to prevent uh, these deals from being endorsed by the university. Okay, so now let's go to E. The post-secondary educational institution may require the disclosure of any contract or agreement between a student-athlete and third party to a designated official of the institution that pertains to compensation for the commercial use of the student-athlete's name, image, and likeness. So now we're back to the whole disclosure requirement and all these draconian reporting requirements. And you have to look at this executive order in the context of the limitations of executive orders. They're not legislation. They're not considering all of the things that the legislature would consider. So Governor Bashir is really just going for the low-hanging fruit here, hitting the high points and getting the list of restrictions. And those are meaningful restrictions all of which go to protecting the institutional interests. So we first protect the interests of the power players, Kentucky, Louisville, and we go down the laundry list of restrictions and we get everything in that we need to make sure that nothing that occurs in this nil marketplace is going to interfere with the revenue streams of the institutions or independent of the control of the institutions. So the institutions, even though they're trying to make it appear as if they don't have any substantive involvement in this no marketplace. They are regulating it like crazy. So they are involved in the no market. They're involved in defining it. And it's because of these restrictions. When you look at, at these through the institutional level, because these aren't NCAA restrictions. These aren't SEC restrictions. These are institutional restrictions. And then again, that ties back into this statement in the preamble that there needs to be from the General Assembly retroactive 
limitations of liability. So they're basically going to get a free pass retroactively. That raises some interesting constitutional issues on the retroactivity of legislation. And courts have drawn a distinction between retroactivity in criminal cases, which is a bad thing, no, no, and retroactivity in civil cases, in non-criminal contexts, which may be okay. And there are a lot of legal issues that are going to be resolved going forward or going to have to be resolved going forward because of the way these bills are structured. And that's something that nobody's talking about, honestly, either. The NCAA is all, you know, up in arms about potential antitrust litigation and besieging frivolous litigation, all that stuff that the Board of Governors in their August 4th, 2020 meeting, when they basically jumped ship and put themselves on partial administrative leave during the heat of COVID and the fall football decisions. But these nil laws, these state laws, putting aside NCAA liability for voluntary rules making, looking at these laws that are going into effect, there's going to be a ton of litigation over those. And if the NCAA were to go to Congress and finally get the antitrust immunity that they didn't get in the Supreme Court and preemption of all these laws and then a provision that says that college athletes can't be employees, there's going to be a ton of litigation over that. This preemption issue, the preemption of state laws in industries and areas and interests that the federal government has decided should be exclusively within the domain of the federal government, and they've protected those interests through preemption by keeping states out of the regulatory field, there's just volumes and volumes of lawsuits in the preemption context over the scope of the uh, preemption, what Congress intended, what's in, what's out. And the NCAA doesn't really care about what the fallout is if they get all these federal protections and immunities. And right now, this whole frenzy over competitive advantage-disadvantage is playing out in the same, I think, reckless way in states that fear that they're losing a competitive disadvantage. There's going to be litigation over these state laws, and there are all kinds of pathways to that litigation. So the uniform nil regulation that the NCAA has been screaming about isn't going to stem all these lawsuits. It's it's probably going to generate more litigation than exists right now. That's my view. And then another thing on the Kentucky's unique interest, it'll be interesting to see if other states follow suit. But You know, Kentucky's in a unique situation, I think, because their two big products, University of Kentucky and University of Louisville, are basketball products primarily. It's they aren't driven by football the way that a lot of other Power Five states are, and because of the differences in the stability of the football labor pool and the basketball labor pool, football much more stable, basketball increasingly unstable because of the, the transfer rules. And there are some obvious reasons for that. And most importantly, that in basketball, one or two players can change a, a team's fortune. And getting a roster retooled is a lot easier. And there's just more, there are more athletes coming and going in basketball. That's the long and short of it. So the volatility in the men's basketball market really makes the competitive advantage disadvantage concerns much more acute in basketball. And I think that may have been a driving force in Bashir just uh, stepping up and, and doing what the NCAA or the Power Five conferences have refused to do. So again, it'll be interesting. And we'll know in the next few days, I think, whether other states are following suit or whether the big-time football schools, and again, this whole market 
the entire business model is driven by Power 5 football interests. So when you hear comments coming out from these conference commissioners, it's running through the lens of big-time football, not big-time men's basketball. So I think the state of Kentucky's interests are somewhat different here, and I would say that may be true in North Carolina, my home state. You know, UNC has a really good football product, and it's getting better and better, but it's still a basketball state. That's how I, I view it, and it'll be interesting to see if Governor Cooper falls in here. But you could see in this executive order pathway, you could see some separation of interest there. That'll be interesting. It's just something to, to bookmark and look at as things move forward. But my guess is that the Power Five conference commissioners who want to shift this liability to the individual institutions, they're really promoting big-time football interests. And if the big-time Power Five football states that don't have a name, image, and likeness law going to effect on July 1st hold their fire and they keep their powder dry, that tells me that they are thinking that there's some other grand strategy that's going to come through Power 5 interests or the Power 5 football interests strong-arming the NCAA into a course of action. We'll know that soon. We'll know that very soon, in a matter of days, perhaps. Because after all this chest-pounding by Mark Emmert about, if the institutions don't act, I'm going to take action myself, we still don't have anything. And I go to the NCAA website every day and go to their media center, and there hasn't been boo on name, image, and likeness. You get these omniscient statements from above, kind of Orwellian statements from Mark Emmert or from the conference commissioners, and you really don't know what to make of it. So who knows what's going on behind closed doors and in the boardrooms and in the private communications among all the interested parties. And rest assured that on the backside of getting shellacked in the Senate and then the United States Supreme Court, the NCAA's lawyers and lobbyists uh, may may be having to backpedal a little bit because, man, I think that they were fully confident that they were going to get everything that they wanted for the NCAA and, and by association, the Power Five in the Senate and then the U.S. Supreme Court. And it just hasn't played out that way. So we'll see. I just wanted to get this quick episode in when I saw that. I I had to say something about it. And then when I finish this up, I'm going to start right into my episode on this house case in California. It's in the Northern District of California. Interestingly, the name plaintiffs there are Grant House, who is a former swimmer at, or maybe he's a current swimmer, at Arizona State. And then the other named plaintiff who is a class representative is Sedona Prince. And that doesn't get much media coverage. Sedona Prince is a women's basketball player at the University of Oregon. She had been at Texas. She started her career at Texas and then had some bad injuries and didn't play. And then she wanted to transfer to Oregon. And at that time, NCAA transfer rules would have required her to sit out a year. And so she applied for a waiver. There's a waiver process for uh, transfers who have special circumstances. She applied for the waiver, and the NCAA denied it. It was ridiculous. That waiver today would have been freely available to her as a matter of right. But back when, I don't know when this was, 2019, I can't remember, but NCAA just really stuck it to her. And it made no sense. If there was ever a case, under her circumstances, if there was ever a case for the grant of a waiver from that transfer rule, hers was it, and she just got stiffed. And then, remember, 
Miss Prince was the one during the women's basketball tournament this year that pointed out the disparities between the women's facilities in San Antonio and the men's facilities in Indianapolis. And boy, that really caused a firestorm, as it should have. But she's a powerful voice out there. And I don't think the NCAA wants to mess around with her, quite frankly. But you haven't heard her name. And this is just one of these little things. When a lawsuit is filed, the first name of the plaintiff becomes the name of the case. So Grant House's name is first on the complaint, and then beneath is Sedona Prince. Nobody talks about the Prince lawsuit. They talk about the House lawsuit. So when I get into this House lawsuit, I'm going to talk a little bit, too, about what this plaintiff class looks like and how it's different from the plaintiff class in Austin and then in O'Bannon before it. And, and I think there's some interesting strategic thinking there and how the plaintiff's lawyers want to position this case, at least for public relations purposes. And I think it's a really smart move, and I'll, I'll talk about that as well. But that's a detailed analysis, and it and that the analysis of, the, of Judge Wilkins' order denying the NCAA's motion to dismiss is significant because it ties directly into some of the thinking that the Supreme Court used in this cross-market analysis. And remember, the House case, this Nill case, has nothing to do directly with the issues that were raised and addressed in Austin. That was the education-related benefits, and I'm going to explain where that education-non-education benefit distinction came from, and that was really from O'Bannon, and that's important to understand too. But interestingly, in Judge Wilkins' order, which was inked, what, four days after the Supreme Court ruled, she doesn't mention the Supreme Court's Austin decision, but you can rest assured that she was influenced by it. And I'm going to talk about the subtle ways in that opinion that I think she, she was influenced by it. But I think it's fascinating. And I'm going to try to make it understandable to lay people, even though some of these antitrust issues are very complicated. But the bottom line here is that her ruling and the incorporation of the, potentially the incorporation of this cross-market analysis that takes consumer demand completely outside of the analysis of the interests that should be considered in, in these athlete challenges to NCAA compensation limits is huge. It is huge. But I'm just going to go ahead and close this thing out. This is on the short side for me, but I just had to get it out there that this executive order pathway could get really, really interesting. And I think Bashir did exactly what he had to do. And I think there may be other similarly situated governors that are right now thinking about doing the same thing. So stay tuned. All right. Thank you so much for joining. It's always an honor and a privilege to have you. And I can't wait to have you back for the next episode of the Big Amateurism Monologues. Take care.